Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible's already open to the 21st chapter of Luke. I hope uh, you're on your way there by now. Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 38. Our text today is the fourth sermon in a series called The Signs of the Second Coming, as we're studying verse by verse through all of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus' disciples had asked him to tell them when the end would occur. That is the end of time. I believe they wanted to date. I suspect this was a question they asked quite often. I know it was a question they asked right up until the very moment that Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives after his resurrection. And likely knowing as before that they wouldn't receive a date, they quickly asked the follow-up question, what will the sign be? And Jesus answered that question very thoroughly. In fact, so thoroughly that it's taken us four Sundays to go through his answer. And just to review, the first sign he said would be the destruction of the temple. They were sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple and Jesus, after they had said, look how wonderful it is, said not one stone is gonna be left upon another. He said, then there's going to come false messiahs. There's going to be people claiming to be messiahs. He said, don't believe them, don't run after them. There's going to be proliferation of warfare, political unrest. He called it commotion, as we have it translated in one of the English translations. Earthquakes, famines, pestilences, signs in the heavens, signs on earth, and then persecution of believers. And Matthew in his gospel tells us that these signs would only be the beginning of birth pains. That is, as time went on, as the time drew nearer to the Lord's second coming, these occurrences that I just listed would be more frequent and more intense in nature. In verse 20, in chapter 21, we have a transition indicated by the conjunction, but. See, up until then, this sign, believers are called to evangelize and even to view their own persecution as an opportunity to bear witness for Jesus Christ. However, there's coming another sign that signals the end of days. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. These are the armies of the Antichrist, according to the book of Revelation. The Antichrist sets up a worldwide empire there in Jerusalem. This is the boastful horn mentioned in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And this leads to the abomination of desolation when Antichrist sets up himself as God on earth and calls for the world to bow down to him. This is no longer a time of evangelism. This is the time Jesus says to flee, to leave the city. And if you're not in the city, don't re-enter it. And last Sunday, we looked at what this period we call the great tribulation period will be like for those living on earth then. Scripture says the sun's going to turn dark. The moon's going to turn to blood. There are going to be earthquakes, which lead to tsunamis. The result is worldwide panic and people from all walks of life, the rich, the poor, the powerful, the weak, they're all going to have the same response. They're gonna understand that these events are not random, that they are a co coordinated effort. In fact, they are the judgment of God upon humanity. And then the final sign, of course, is Jesus himself coming in the clouds as Daniel said he would. But remember, Jesus gives us these signs not to frighten his followers 
but to encourage his followers that he's in control over all of the events of history. In fact, in verse 28 it says, when you see these signs, look up, straighten up, because your redemption draws nigh. Well, that brings us to our final section of chapter 21 today. Let's read Luke 21, beginning in verse 29, all the way to the end of the chapter. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would, come, would uh, get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Well, as he often did throughout his ministry, Jesus taught through a parable here at the end of chapter 21. Remember a parable? It's a simple story or illustration that clarifies Jesus' teaching. Well, this may very well be the plainest and easiest and simplest parable the Lord ever taught. So let's look at it again in verse 29. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. That's the entirety of the parable. Now, remember that it was springtime there in Jerusalem and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives and all around them there are plants putting forth leaves. There's not only fig trees, there's olive trees and all kinds of vineyards there. And so I take it, he just says, look over there. Just as you see that those leaves are coming on those trees and it will soon be the summertime, so you are to look at the signs that are happening all around you and know that this great event is going to take place. The leaves then are the signs that he has just mentioned in verses 25 through 29. Now, verse 32 is the one in this little section of scripture that has tripped up so many people. He said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, what does he mean by this generation? What generation? Now, historically we've said that a generation in biblical terms is about 40 years. And so um, these disciples uh, were probably still relatively young men. Was he saying that all of them would still be alive when all of these events of history have been fulfilled? Well, if that's what he was saying, he was wrong. And we know that Jesus is not wrong. Now there are those, again, that hold to the amillennial view that say everything that he mentions here took place in 70 AD. But we certainly haven't seen Jesus coming in the clouds, have we? And so this uh, certainly can't be what he means, at least from my perspective. I think what I was taught as a boy is true about most things. That's that the most obvious answer is usually the right one. And the most obvious answer here to me is that this generation he refers to is the generation that is living during the great tribulation. We believe that to be seven literal years of this tribulation period, meaning when these armies surround Jerusalem of the Antichrist, it will be in very short order until Christ comes back. That is, 
within a generation, much less than that if we take those seven years literally. And so he, he's saying for those who are alive during that period, look up because your redemption is very near. It's right at the door. And he re reinforces the importance and veracity of his message. He says, truly I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. What does it mean when Jesus says that heaven and earth will pass away? Well, that is reinforced many places in the Bible. Revelation 21, verse one, for example, talks about the new heaven and the new earth coming. Peter in his epistles declared that everything on earth will be burned up with fervent heat. Um, in Isaiah chapter 51, Jesus, I think is paraphrasing that text when he says, my word or my salvation lasts forever. This truth, friends, informs Christians how we ought to order and prioritize our life, that heaven and earth are passing away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And I think it causes us to think at least on three truths. Number one, nothing is more valuable than the word of God. Now, why is that? It is because that the word of God gives us the way to salvation. John, when he wrote his gospels, stated at the end of that gospel that the purpose of it was that we might hear and by hearing we might believe. It's a gospel tract. God has not left us in the dark, has he? He has revealed everything that we need to know about himself and everything we need to know to be saved right here in his word. So secondly, it is foolish to invest heavily in this life. Why would you invest heavily in something, he says in very short order, is all gonna be burned up. That's why the Bible says to lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather we should lay up treasure in heaven. But I think the most important truth to take from what Jesus says here is that as Christians, we should be looking forward to the second coming and not dreading it. See, there's a whole genre of literature and movies out there about the apocalypse. How many dozens of movies are about the apocalypse? And they're really in the genre of horror stories, most of them, right? And I think, unfortunately, that's how even Christians have begun to think about the second comings with, with some dread and trepidation. That's the exact opposite effect that Jesus wants it to have here. He says, when you see these things, straighten up, look up. That is with confidence because your redemption is, is drawing near. In fact, I think that is really one of the key defining marks of what it means to be a Christian is that you are looking forward to the second coming. And this is what Paul said to Timothy, wasn't it? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he comes to the end of his life. He's not viewing the end of his life with dread. In fact, Paul says, I'm, I'm torn whether he should stay here or go on to be absent with the, from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, to live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul said. And so he says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul puts an equal sign between Christian and those who love the appearing of Christ. They are one and the same to him. If you are born again, that means that you're a person who's looking forward to the second coming. And so I put it to you. We've been studying the signs of the second coming. This is the fourth Sunday in a row. So if you've been coming, you've heard a lot about it. 
How do you feel about it? Is it something that fills your heart with joy or with dread? That tells you a lot about your spiritual condition, depending on how you view the second coming of the Lord. Now, he moves on to verse 34, and he gives them a plea. He says, be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the alert, of all the earth, but be on the alert at all times. So here's a plea from Christ to those who will be living on earth during that generation. He says, be watchful and be sober. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness. Dissipation means a waste of time, an unfruitful time in your life. The scripture says that we're not to be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. It's a waste of time, but be filled with the spirit. He says a very similar thing here. He says, don't fill your life with dissipation or unproductive things. And right at the top of that list of unproductive things, he says, is drunkenness. Don't be weighted down or encumbered. This reminds me of the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews is describing the race of life where we're surrounded with this great crowd of witnesses. And he says that we are to run the weight race. And before we do, we're to lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us or encumbers us or keeps us from making progress in sanctification. And if anything keeps us from making progress in sanctification, it's dissipation and drunkenness. That is filling your life with these unproductive things. And as we look around the landscape of our country today, that is the present state of affairs. I remember back in the summer when our governmental officials realized that the coronavirus was going to change things, not just for a few weeks, but maybe months and maybe years. And one of the first fears that our healthcare providers brought forth is that if Americans are not able to get to the liquor store, there's going to be a widespread series of withdrawals because so many in our country are absolutely addicted and dependent upon alcohol. And so right away, most states made it legal for the first time for alcohol stores to deliver just to keep the country functioning. Well, it's not any different than it was in Jesus' day. He says, you know, the temptation is going to be when you see all these terrifying things happening is to drown it and numb yourself with alcohol, which is exactly what so many of our friends and neighbors are doing today. He says, you're not to be like that. I can remember one of my first jobs in high school and I worked on a construction crew and so many of that construction crew, we got paid every Friday. They took their paycheck, got it cashed and went and bought as much alcohol as they could buy. And they would stumble in about one o'clock Monday to work. Finally, the boss asked him one day, why do you do that? And I never shall forget what this young man said in his twenties. He says, I do it to forget. And that's what so many in our own community are doing. They're numbing themselves with drugs and alcohol because they want to forget that God will hold them accountable one day to the life that they lived. Christians, we're not to be that way. We're to not uh, be tripped up or stumble with dissipation and drunkenness. We're to look to the Lord with great anticipation of his second coming. He talks about the cares of this life distracting us. 
Something we need to remind ourselves about Jesus. He never denied that life is hard, did he? In fact, he's very, very well qualified to say it's hard. He lived a hard life. He died a hard death. Scripture says he's tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. Jesus knows it's hard to keep food on the table these days. He knows it's hard to deal with aging parents. He knows it's hard with the pressures of your job. He knows that your relationships are difficult. He knows that it's been difficult in the last few months just to keep the wolf away from the door. He knows all of that. Doesn't deny it at all. But to all of that, he says this, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He's just saying, keep your priorities in order. Yes, you've got to eat. Yes, you've got to pay the bills. Yes, you've got to take care of mom and dad. But keep your relationship with God first and foremost. Now, these things are real and necessary, but don't let them distract you from what is of eternal significance. And that's why, again, he uses this conjunction. Look at verse 36. Here it is again. But that is instead of being drunken and numbing yourself to the reality of these things, the opposite of being drunk is be on the alert, be sober, be clear thinking, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. That's our third point is prayer in verse 36. Not just any prayer, specifically, he says, pray for strength to escape these things. Now, if prayerfulness is anything, it's a recognition of your constant dependence on God. Our former pastor here, almost every time he stood here to pray, he would begin his prayer by saying, we are needy people. And I find myself repeating that prayer over and over to the Lord. We are needy people. We need him every day. I think many of us in the last few months have realized how much we need him. But the truth is we don't need him any more during the coronavirus than we did before the coronavirus. We just recognize it a little more, hopefully. And in those last days when it's worse than it is today, by many factors, he says, y'all keep doing what you've been doing. Pray. Remember back in the summer when we were studying the book of Daniel? And remember the king made a law that you couldn't pray to any God but him. And Daniel didn't obey that law. He just kept doing what he was always doing, right? He'd go up into his prayer room and open the windows and, and pray towards Jerusalem several times a day. And I said at that time that in times of crisis, we ought not have to fundamentally change our prayer life. Daniel didn't change anything, even though it was a crisis moment. He just kept doing what he always did. And that's really what Jesus is calling them to do. Keep praying, keep staying in a state of dependence upon God, even as the worst of the worst comes. Because he knows that when the worst of the worst come, the temptation will be to be overwhelmed and anxious about world events. Well, we're like Daniel. We can't do much about the events of the world so we are told to pay attention to ourselves and our own spiritual condition. Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are about to take place and stand before the Son of God. This is what I tell people in my office during counseling sessions all the time. I don't have a magic bullet. I don't have a wand that I can wave and make all your problems go away. 
but almost at the end of every counseling session, I'll look at that person, that Christian who's going through a difficult crisis, and I'll say, here's what you do. You do what is right. No matter what your husband does, no matter what your wife does, no matter what your children do, no matter what your boss does, you are a Christian. You do what is right. This is what Jesus is saying. You can't undo all this that's happening in the world. You can't change to any degree what others will do. You focus on your own walk with the Lord. We participate in our own sanctification. Now we're saved by grace through faith. That's a gift of God. But every day for the rest of our life till Jesus comes or he calls us home, we participate in our sanctification. We do that through the disciplines of prayer, fellowship, Bible study. All of these things are the disciplines that he uses to make us more like himself. By the way, the, West, the best way not to be weighed down by cares of life is prayer, isn't it? Turn to Philippians chapter 4 real quickly. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, a man who was very much acquainted with pain and suffering and the cares of life. In fact, he wrote this epistle from jail, imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Isn't it amazing that one of the epistles that he wrote from jail is called the epistle of joy. Because every time you look to a new verse in Philippians, there's that word joy over and over again. And so we've come to Philippians chapter four and Paul's concern is not for his own condition, but for Christians outside of prison. And this is uh, the command he gives. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. That means in every circumstance of life, whether good or bad, it's similar to what he told the young pastor Timothy when he gave him his charge to preach the word in season and out of season. The King James says when it's convenient, when it's not. That is, in every circumstance of life, preach the word. Now he says to Christians, in every circumstance of life, rejoice. And in case we missed it the first time, he says, and again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And by the way, did you know that another translation of that is your sobriety, your, your clear headedness. Isn't that what Jesus said about when you see all these signs happen? Don't be drunk and waste your time, but be clear headed and clear headed and think clearly. So let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now that can mean one of two things. That could mean his second coming is near. And Paul lived every day as if that might be the last. We ought to as well. But I think what he's really saying is the Lord's presence is near. Presence is near. He's not hiding from us like some needle in a haystack. He is a very present help in our time of trouble. And so because he's a present help in time of trouble, verse six says, be anxious for what? Nothing. So, so, are we to be anxious when we see the army surrounding Jerusalem or the sun turning black or the moon turning to blood? No, look up for your redemption is drawing near. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So when we come to the Lord consistently, not only with prayer, but with thankful prayer. And I take that to mean thanking him that he's sovereign over every circumstance of life. 
Here's his promise. The peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember I told you that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, offers us peace, and Matt said it this morning in, in two ways. One is that objective peace, meaning we start out as enemies of God, and through faith in Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God the Father. We can now come into his presence. He calls us sons and daughters of the Most High. Jesus calls us his friends. But he also gives us that subjective peace, that peace of heart and mind. And as we read the book of Revelation last week of what the worldwide reaction is going to be with all these great tribulation signs, it's not peace, is it? running to the caves and calling for the mountains to fall on them because they recognize the wrath of God has come. The peace of God to Christians will surpass all comprehension that no one's going to be able to understand it because it won't make any logical sense. He says it's going to stand guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That, that word stand guard there, as you might guess, is a military term. It, it's the, the image there of a king in his tent surrounded by armed soldiers who will not let anything disrupt the peace of the king. And he says, when we come to him with consistent, thankful prayer, he will surround our hearts and minds with that kind of incomprehensible peace. And then he says, not only prayer, we need to think about the truth. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellent, if anything's worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. I think the overarching and undergirding truth about peace and anxiety as it relates to the gospel is that he never denies the reality of pain and suffering. But he says that for a believer whose eyes are on heaven, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, our peace of mind is not dependent upon favorable circumstances. We don't have to have things go just right all the time for us to have peace. All we need to know is what David wrote in the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk, where? Through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? For thou with me, the Lord is with us. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think the most important truth that any human can know and fix to their heart and mind is that God is with them. And the only way you can know God is with you is to bow your knee to the Lordship of his son. There may be here people today in this room around the building, certainly people watching over the internet today and you've been overwhelmed the last nine months. You're at your wit's end. You don't have that peace of heart or, or peace of mind. You, you don't look forward to the second coming of Jesus. It seems like your life has been turned upside down. Well, thank the Lord. Because by his spirit, he's uh, showing you your need of a savior. And that's a very gracious thing for him to do. He, he could have left us all to die forever in darkness and in our sins. But instead, as we think about this Christmas season, he sent light into the world, didn't he? The light of the world is the Lord Jesus. And every time we light a candle and
Every time we turn on our Christmas tree or our lights at our house, it ought to remind us of that great and glorious truth. God didn't leave us in the dark, that he sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life, tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He went to the cross and died a literal death, the substitute for your sins and for mine. Three days later, he arose victorious over the grave. Forty days later, he ascended in the presence of many witnesses into heaven with the promise that one day he'd come again. The scripture lays out what it's going to be like leading up into that time. We're seeing those signs all around us growing more intense and happening with increasing frequency. Don't miss the signs. Jesus says you, you, you don't have to have a PhD in horticulture to know that when you see the green leaves coming in the spring, that summer's going to follow. And you don't have to have a PhD in theology to know when you see all the signs that Jesus predicted, his second coming can't be far away. Don't miss the signs. Heed his warnings and his pleas. For lost people, that is to repent and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. For Christians, it's to be watchful and prayerful until that day. Whatever category you're in, the Lord has a message for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that you have not left us in the dark, groping around blindly. Instead, you've given us your word. You tell us that heaven and earth will pass away. Not your word. It endures forever. So forgive us where we ignore it or hold it lightly. Father, help us to treasure your word. Help us to build our lives and prioritize our days upon it. Father, I thank you for your exceeding great and precious promises. First, that you made in John 14 to your disciples that you're going away, but you're going to be preparing a place for us that one day we can be where you are. Father, I'm grateful that you are a sovereign God and that one day you will come and make all things right again. Until then, Father, you've given us signs to watch for. You haven't given us a date, but you've given us signs not to frighten us, but for believers to encourage us that you are in control of all the events of history. Father, even as we look around our own country and see the events of the last year or so, Lord, help us not to be fearful or overwhelmed or full of anxiety. But Father, even in these circumstances, as Paul says, let us rejoice and give thankful prayer because you're near and you love us. And one day, this is all gonna be behind us and we'll be with you forever. And so with Paul, we say, help us fight a good fight until the end and help us, Father, all look forward to that coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.